On this week's episode of Forks and Fangs, we talk with the writer Michelle Flores about her book of poetry, Cuentos from the Swamp, and her children's book, Carlito the Bat, about a little boy who learns to face his fears while trick-or-treating during Halloween. We also talk to Michelle about the necessity of taking up space in an art form dominated by whiteness, growing up in the South, teaching in the time of COVID, and what favorite Cuban dish she could never do without. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. Join us as we interview the multi-talented Michelle Flores. Welcome to Forks and Fangs. I'm your co-host, Veronica. Hi, I'm Denny. (laughs) (laughs) And we are um, joined with a very special guest. Um, all the way from Jacksonville, Florida. Is that correct, Jacksonville? Duval. All That's right, correct. you know Jacksonville. <laughs> <laughs> <That's Duval>. mm. <laughs> um, we are here to uh, interview the wonderful Miss Michelle Lizette Flores. So thank you so much for coming onto our podcast Woo-hoo! today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so, uh, Danny, why don't you tell us a little bit about Miss Michelle? So I know her. No, we're <laughs> so she has, she is um my coworker sister. So that's how I know her. That's how that connection was made. Yes, because she mm-hmm. always saw me carrying like weird books around. And she asked me like, Denny, do you are you part of a book club? And I'm like, Yeah. <laughs> she and she's like, Oh, so who who are you with? I'm like. I I do it and she's like oh you do it <laughs> it was I love Nicole she's a special she's a special human being but you know and that's that's where this all started mm-hmm. and so here we are we have Michelle so yeah yeah Michelle is from FSU and NYU um, she graduated with creative writing programs. Uh, she currently works as an educator and a content creator and has previously been published in magazines and journals such as the Miami Real, Sierra Journal, the Tra- and Travel Latina. Her first chapbook, Cuentos from the Swamp, is available from Finishing Line Press. Winner of the 2019 Get, Get Like Us chapbook contest, her, ne- her next chapbook, Memoria, is forthcoming from Rabbit... C- catastrophe press carlito the bat learns to trick or treat is her first picture book mm-hmm. welcome once again thank you um, as we get ready to ask all the questions the first thing <laughs> I'd like to ask of you is to read one of your one of your favorite pieces from your from your poetry book quintos from the swamp yeah Ooh. okay please be Please pick my favorite. I don't <laughs> <laughs> well, which one's your favorite? Oh. No, I'll let you do. I'll let you do it. No, go okay. ahead. Um, mm, this is tough. Okay, I'm gonna do one of the oldest pieces in this book. So I wrote this poem when I was like 19 or 20, I think. Okay. Um, but I feel like it really captures the essence of the whole book, and this is "Ode to a Chonga." I don't know if that was the right answer, but <laughs> no, everything's the right answer. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, 
Okay, Ode to a Chonga. I saw you at Flanagan's, standing near the bar, waiting your, with your friends, and I thought, dale mama, with your crunchy curly hair down the middle of your back, with your pursed lips dripping Spanglish to anyone who'll listen, you susunas the acrylic, fingering the hoop earrings your arm could fit through. I could see the wajira in your eyes, the way they were filled with los, ra los rayos de lumbre pura, and the beauty Jose Martí depicted. So I went to holla at you, throwing down some versos sencillos, and as we stood near the end of the bar, your hips dipped to the merengue in the background. I caught you staring at my scars the way I stared at those perfect labios. As you talked, Martí, your hands moved like a lavadora, weaving that santería before I knew what hit me. I asked about the name on your breast, and when you said it was in memory of your papá, I knew the sunrises spent building condos for the gringos were worth it. <laughs> yes, that's Thank definitely you. one of my favorites too. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. <laughs> A little background to that piece. Yeah. Um. So chongas were, I think, like very popular in like the early two thousands when I was in high school, and it was, I guess, like the Miami version of a chola. So in the West Coast, it's like that's like a very Mexican American, Central American identity. Chongas are like the Caribbean version of that. So it's steeped in hip hop culture, but also Latin culture and very much of like a working class style of dress, like a more urban style of dress. And I think for a long time, it was considered really like improper, ugly in a lot of ways, inappropriate, like girls who dress like that were fast and that whole thing. And when I was in my MFA program, I kept thinking about these stereotypes that we have, especially for women of color who take ownership of their bodies and dress in ways that they're not supposed to. And I was just really thinking about like, what if we humanize the chonga and, and not make her a stereotype, but make her a full embodied human being with her own ideas, who studies literature, but she also likes to dance and she likes to wear tight clothes and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, yes. And that's, I felt like that's kind of what I was doing in my MFA program because I just felt like I was the, the odd girl out. My parents didn't go to college, but <laughs> here I am getting my master's degree. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and so I feel like that all of that was just running through my mind as I wrote that poem. See, that, nice. was, that was beautiful. <laughs> you know um it is something of when it comes to poetry and ha having the opportunity to have the the writer in front of you to tell us what that piece is is a gift so. yeah it's like a different <laughs> whole other world because you can you know you can think of something like you might come close to what she wants you to read from those like lines but when you read it from her it's like yes, yes. it's like <laughs> Well, um, here on uh, Forks and Fangs, we normally, if it's a book that we're talking about, we pair it with a dish. Uh, but when we're interviewing people, we like to ask them about food. Um, so our number one and always will be, first question will always be about um, what you like to eat. <laughs> so we want to know what is your favorite Cuban food or a food that reminds you of home? Oh man, so always, this is so easy for me, arroz con pollo, which is just chicken and rice, mm -hmm. but it's like <laughs> on steroids, it's so good. It's yellow rice and you've got the peas in there and the chicken is cooked with the rice. So it's like 
extra soft and everything just melts in your mouth and only my abuelas can can really do the trick like i try to make it but it just doesn't come close to when she makes it so see the thing is like i used to work in miami FYI. yeah so i used to work in miami beach and when i have a really tough day i look for that and i'm not yeah. joking and it's like oh my god let me just let me just hit up like my my girl down the, down the street from the hospital <laughs> like a food truck situation um i'm most of the times i'm a little mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so i think it was like um it was a little situation like they might have like a stand like a little just a little hole in the mm-hmm. wall kind of place yeah that's the best place to go get food yes For real. and who serves you is her abuela mm-hmm. that's right that's everybody's everybody's nana is in yes. there yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so oh (laughs) we have a list of questions yes but we asked our our uh, special audience to submit questions oh (laughs) we pulled this extra special question out yes because you know we, we i know you have now you know you're working on your new new book and then you have these two books, but this is really the most important question um, from this lot right here. Um, we really want to know, or can you talk about like your most specific memory? She just wanted to know which was your most memorable adventure with Smelly Shelly and Sticky Nicky. If you oh can- my God. <laughs> if, if you can just, if you can just mention one of, one of the memories there that would be great nicole i'm gonna kill you (laughs) (laughs) now to clue everybody in this question came from michelle's sister so that's why okay let 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 the let the world know let the fam in Uh, the podcast yes (laughs) so funny okay so in high school i think it was my sister's 14th birthday And she had been gone for a week at a camp or something like that. And so I was bored in the house, in the house bored. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to make a book. You know, and I I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing, but I bought a journal and I took a bunch of old pictures of like throughout my sister's life. And I just put together this, basically a scrapbook, but I wrote a story of my sister's life and I added like, all these cute little beatings and stickers and everything to it. And it was so, because it was so thick with like glue and beads and stuff. You couldn't even close it. It was just like a massive book (laughs) like that. But I did that and I wrote the story. And then from then on, those were kind of like our nicknames for each other. And, and it was like Sticky Nicky and Smelly Shelly. And I would, I would keep writing these little stories about hijinks we would get into when we were kids Oh, that's so sweet. Does she still have it? Did she get it? somewhere. I feel like she does have it, but we've just moved around so much over the years. We probably just need to go through my dad's house and, and find it. I hope she still has it. That's like, you know, that's a that's a heirloom right there. Yeah. <laughs> find that one. Like, you know, for sure. This is this was my first book. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're gonna we're gonna move into what we really want to talk about, and that is your book, um, Quintos from the Swamp. So your um, your poetry 
touches on various topics. Do you, and you know, a lot has to do with like your, your mother, your grandfather, um, but one that is prevalent is the topic of, of race. And mm -hmm. so we wanted to know, do you find that it's easier to put on paper your thoughts about sensitive areas of this race or even death um, than it is to speak on those matters with people who may have either, you know, varying viewpoints on that subject? Do you think it's easier to write about it versus to actually have a full out discussion with someone? I think, um so for me, it's it's kind of like I do both. I I didn't always write as directly about race as I do now. Um, when I was in college, in undergrad, I had this professor who was straight white male and was very much like, if you think to yourself about your race or about your gender all the time, that's weird. And I'm sitting there like an 18-year-old Hispanic girl in college, like, I, I literally think about this all the time. It's, I'm reminded everywhere that I'm different. Yep. Nobody else drinks coffee the way I do. Nobody else eats rice and beans. Nobody else puts 10 pounds of garlic in their food. Like, I am so reminded of my differences all the time. And even my appearance, people, because I'm ethnically ambiguous, so people always are like, are you Native American? Like, what's going on there? And it, that, that comment just rubbed me the wrong way. And so for a couple of years, I was like, okay, I guess I shouldn't write about this kind of stuff. And I should just write characters without perspective. And then I realized that is not me being true to myself. And so once I hit grad school, I think that's what really started to help my work take shape and set it apart from other people was I used Spanglish constantly. And I would take these stereotypes that I grew up with and start to humanize them. Um, and I've just been doing that since. And I feel like the older I get, the more I lean into it. Mm -hmm. And the more I'm also trying to expand my understanding of that, I think I, so I also, aside from writing, I'm a teacher and I was in Teach for America. And with Teach for America, there comes a lot of what we call diversity, equity, and inclusion work, mm -hmm. where you basically need to unpack your identity racially, ethnically, class-wise, um, even sometimes religion, and, and understand yourself through all those different layers. And I think just over time, because of discussions I've had, having those really hard conversations with people and understanding like levels of privilege and intersectionality, it's then transitioned into my work um, almost in like a seamless way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which I think is, you know, is wonderful because it's it's very like as an 18 year old your professors and the adults around you make such a big impression on you mm -hmm. so what is constantly being told to you from like you know when you're as a child up to where like you know as a young adult it's hard to just take away all of a sudden you're gonna wake up and you're just like oh yeah you know I'm gonna go back to my roots and like this is what I want to talk about it's hard when it's bit, when you're when you're always told that you know you don't you actually don't matter it you, mm -hmm. you, you don't have to like understand yourself mm -hmm. so I think mm -hmm. I think it it takes a lot of work and what a statement for your professor to make for someone who does not have to think about himself in any of those categories at all 
Yep. They just go through life and not understand like the weight of what it is that he said to students who might not look like him. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, kudos to you for you being able to step out and, and, and do, do more than uh, what others expect you to do because mm -hmm. they feel like you shouldn't, you shouldn't do it. And mm -hmm. uh, so we appreciate that. And, and this Spanglish is lit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm living for this. <laughs> so uh, poetry can be a, a, a misunderstood art form of mm -hmm. people. How did you find yourself called into this writing medium? And how do you continue to justify space for this genre of writing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I think to the first part, I think a lot about ancestral legacy and the habits that our ancestors have that we pick up, even if we've never met those ancestors. Mm -hmm. I do firmly believe that that kind of stuff is, is transitioned down from generation to generation. Um, my great grandfather was a poet and a musician. My grandfather was a songwriter and a musician. My mom was a singer. And I just come from this really long line of like, I joke, working class artists, like just a lot of people who have day jobs, but have always created some type of art. And so I think for me, I view my writing as a legacy of that. Mm -hmm. I, I have been writing since I knew how to write. I have stacks and stacks of journals at home. Um, and I didn't realize I could become a writer really until I think I was in high school. And I saw this movie. It's like a very cheesy kind of movie called Finding Forrester. And it's oh, about this kid. Beautiful. Yeah. It's about <laughs> this kid who like, he's like very stiff. In a lot of ways, he could be the stereotypical, like poor black kid, lives in the city, single mom kind of situation. But then he gets a mentor. And the mentor is like a famous author who coaches him on how to write and how to be a writer because he already has that spark. And I was like, oh, I can do this too. I just got to figure out how to convince my parents that I can do this, you know, because <laughs> they're like a writer. They don't make money. What are you doing? <laughs> Did they have an idea of what you wanted to do? They knew that I wanted to be a writer, but they were like, ah, but law school or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And I'm like, I don't, I have too many, I don't know how to hide my own opinions about stuff to be a lawyer. Like, I would just be like, you're guilty. I can't defend you. Sorry. <laughs> Case closed. Case closed. Yeah, get them out. Caleb? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But we're, this evidence ain't it, so. Um, but, yeah, I just, I think that was really the thing that sparked it, was, like, I always had this drive in me, didn't know where it came from. And then recently, like, since my mom passed away, I talk a lot to my grandma about our, our family, and she's the one who's told me a lot of these stories, so... I do feel like for, for a certain extent, my desire to write is just ancestral. It's just part of who I am. In terms of justifying it, like, I feel human beings have an innate desire to create, but that creation looks really different for different people. Mm -hmm. Some people cook, some people build, some people, you know, sing or whatever. For me, it's writing. And I think all of it has a place. We just live in a world where if you can't monetize it, it's seen as not essential. Yes. And I think that's where we fall apart. 
and that's like the downside of capitalism i think because it 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 like creates human beings or turns human beings into commodities and i think that is like a really sad thing because cavemen would paint you know this is something we've always done as human beings but the more we monetize our hobbies and everything has to be you know like how can i get google adsense to pay for this thing that i want to do which is important because we need to survive but you know then i also wonder like what is lost through that exchange um so i don't know i haven't fully wrapped my head around like how i feel about it but i i i almost feel like i shouldn't have to justify it because this is human nature yeah. and in all cultures across the world people tell stories people make art yeah and it's just who we are yeah because if nobody would do that nobody would know for the next generation what have happened to you know the previous people before them yeah you exactly can all the money in the world you can bid all of this but if nobody would tell the story nobody would know how great you were exactly and yeah. that's the importance of poetry because to me poetry poets are the storytellers they're the ones that usher the narrative of the times along mm -hmm. and to not have those people there telling us like you know what we should be doing or listening to or you know where we should be going future terms um we would be lacking so you know on behalf of the poet lover i.e me like thank you for <laughs> doing what it is that that you continue to do thank you so um in one of your poems here in in the book um in crabtree park you wrote i probably won't read this as good as you but here here <laughs> <clears throat> Oh, what a moment to be young, carefree and brown in a world that would see us hidden or buried. So that really struck a chord on me because I'm Asian. I might not look like it because I'm like in the, you know, underbaked side of the <laughs> spectrum. But I completely understand how you feel when you said you were totally different. You look different. You don't fit in a mold. That was me too because they're like, are you, you know, the it's very ambiguous but mm -hmm. um especially now like um we saw your wonderful children they're they're biracial yeah and, and they're beautiful um what is your like advice to parents or people that are listening that you know how to raise kids like this in a very tough world right now and you know how to educate their children their their importance it doesn't matter what the world says, but, you know, self-worth, self-worth for them is the most important thing. I think, so someone who's in my position, for example, in an interracial relationship, there's always power dynamics, no matter what kind of relationship you're in. And in my case, I might not have gender privilege, but I have racial privilege. And that's something it took me a while to understand what that actually meant. But it's like, for the most part, I present as white and so like people don't really question my identity whereas my husband doesn't leave a store without holding a receipt in his hand because he doesn't want to get accused of stealing something you know so it's like those layers of us having those very real conversations with each other of like this is how we are perceived in the world and this is also how we perceive ourselves and so now when we talk to our kids we talk about both aspects of that because you know, they're still young, they're still growing into their features, and those features might change over time, but they definitely don't 
present as white in the way that I do. And so we have to make sure that we're realistic in the sense of like understanding your background, but then also we talk about the richness of our cultures, you know, like my husband's from Memphis, which is, you know, such a culturally significant city to the United States. We've been to Cuba as a family and once our passports are worth something, we'll go back. Um, but, but like we, and we eat Cuban food, we eat barbecue. Like my husband is really good with growing things and planting. So the kids help us with that. We, we try to find ways to share the culture and at the same time, not, not overwhelm our kids with everything that's going on. Cause I think it's really easy to do that, but also just show like, you know, you have such a diverse, beautiful culture. You need to celebrate it. There are hardships. There's bad things that have happened, but there's a lot of good that we can do as well. Mm-hmm. And we just need to, you know, for me personally, I think it starts with having the open and honest conversations. And I think the reason why we see so much of what we see right now is because people are afraid of having tough conversations. Amen. And then that leads to stereotyping, that leads to lashing out, that leads to the chaos we see right now, which isn't new. It's always been part of United States history, but everybody's got a phone that they can project it everywhere. Yes. And that's, that's the difference right now. Yeah. Everything is magnified. Exactly. Yeah. So um, also in your, like, I feel like, you know, from reading your, from reading your, your, your chat book, I felt like I kind of knew your family all of a sudden. <laughs> and I feel like she's now my cousin. Um, so, and I, f- I felt like, that is how my family is too. And I just, you know, it's, it, this is not like, you know, like a question, but I just want to like make a comment on how you, while reading this, you made people feel that they're part of your family. And it's almost like you welcomed them. That made me miss my own family. And I'm just like, you know, I wish my grandparents were still alive. I wish I can talk to them again about this stuff. They passed recently. So that's why I was like, it it like it tug on the heartstrings, Michelle. I just wanted mm-hmm. to know that. For, Thank you. you know, for my for my part. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. I think um, while while reading it, as she says that you are like her cousin. <laughs> for me, reading it, I would be like, you know, you my home girl. There, like the mm-hmm. the poems that you would write, especially like when you're, you know, talking about the people that you meet and you're having these moments with them are like, those are those phone calls that you get from your homegirl. Like, Girl, mm-hmm. I met this person last night. <laughs> it was, it was a treat. It was a delight mm-hmm. to read through this, through the, through your book. Thank you. Force and Fames is dedicated to highlighting uh, people of color and only people of color because what the world um, shows us to be important literature and classical literature are of people of European descent. Um, so what is it that you, or how do you feel like it is important to show representation in the poetry that you write, in the children's books that you write? What is it 
that you want people to understand the importance of understanding what it is to have representation? So for poetry, it's interesting because I feel like for me, poetry is a space for me to unpack my understanding of self. And it's funny that you bring up the European descent piece because technically I am a person of European descent. I have Spanish ancestry, but I also have indigenous ancestry and African ancestry like most Caribbean people do. Um, I think for me in poetry, it's like my understanding of my Latinidad is like, for so long, Latinidad has always been the connection to Spain. And I'm much more interested in exploring my indigenous roots and my African roots and trying to figure out like along the lines due to colonization, how did that culture get lost? And, and how can I reclaim it? Is it mine to reclaim? Is that something that I no longer should have access to? Those are all the questions that I, I try to ask myself with my poetry. And then also thinking about the fact that now I am the mother to two black Latinx kids you know, how are they going to understand their identity in the U.S., especially because it's such a racial binary here, and there's no real, like, now we're getting an understanding of what it means to be mixed race or biracial, but it's not understood on the same level that it would be in other countries where there wasn't a racial binary, you know, so it's, um, that's really what, what I try to use my poetry for, is trying to figure out those relationships uh, to things and unpacking my own privilege. And then just in general, connecting with nature, reflecting on you know, spaces where traditionally Latinx people are not like typically depicted as being. But like, I come from a long line of hillbillies. Like we were in the mountains in Cuba, we lived on farms. My grandma talked about how she could climb a tree barefoot and like pull down the coconuts. Like <laughs> that's the life that they lived. And in the U.S., it's like I tell people, you know, my family goes camping all the time and we go fishing and they're like, what? That's not Hispanic people don't do that. And it's like, yeah, we do. <laughs> um, so it's a lot of that kind of stuff. For my children's literature, I will always make books that my kids can see themselves in. So that's why the picture book is my son's face, like all about him. Um, I'm working on a YA novel right now where the protagonist is based off of my daughter. And it's like a fairy tale retelling. Um, and, and that's like how I'm gonna write my kids books all the time. I wanna make sure that they can see themselves. That's always gonna be like an Afro Latino or a black Latino mixed to it because if we think Latinx identity is not explored, Afro-Latinx identity is definitely not explored. Yes, yes. And it's so important because so much of Latin culture comes from Africa. Like plantains, <laughs> that's African. The, the beat, when you listen to like the beat of a merengue or a salsa song, it's very ancestral African beats. And it's the same thing. And you can dance the same steps. and like even looking at, like at bachata and then how people dance in, in other countries in Africa, you're like, this is the same dancing. Mm -hmm. We just grew some extra spins in there, but like it's the same <laughs> thing. <laughs> so that is the kind of thing that I really want to push to explore. I'm glad that you, you mentioned like the, the camping and how people say that's not 
what Hispanic people or Latinx people mm-hmm. do because um, it's important to show that um, we are multifaceted people, that we yeah. all have varying experiences and that we can do different things and that we can take up and take up space that most people allocate only for or white people. Mm-hmm. So going camping or like today I went and walked on the trail and every time I see somebody who's not white riding on a bicycle, I just stare at them because it's just like yeah, something that when I was younger was never a thought in my mind that, you know, is a possibility. So when you see something like you were reading a book and you see yourself reflected in that, you know, you're like, oh, you know, we can have these stories told and we can have people who look like us take these adventures. I, you know, I think uh, there's a movie, I think it's called Come Away, that's about to come out. That's a combination of Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan. Mm. And it's all um, black and brown people that mm-hmm. are, are those characters. So it really, you know, places a thing on it where you say, okay, you can, you know, be that fairy that takes mm-hmm. you if you want to. You can be that mermaid whatever you want it's it's there and so uh that brings us to um you telling us more about uh about your halloween story about your son yeah so carlito the bat is based off of an actual time we went trick-or-treating as a family and my son is very timid he or he used to be he's not as much anymore (laughs) but a couple (laughs) years ago he was like he wouldn't even knock on the door he saw someone in a costume and he freaked out like he was really nervous about it but he loved halloween because he's like it's candy i can dress up however i want so i wanted to write a story about that experience of like being a little boy and a little bit afraid of the world. And then, you know, understanding that sometimes the world is kind of scary and, and it's okay to feel that fear. But when you've got people around you who can, you know, support you, you've got to take that leap too. And, and you've got to push yourself to open yourself up to new experiences. Um, and then I also wanted to show just like the diversity that is my real lived experience. I get really frustrated when people talk about diversity, like, oh, you're just trying to to get diversity points or you just did that to fill a quota. And I'm like, this is my life. Mm -hmm. I'm always around black and brown people all the time. And I don't really know another way of life. And I think people think it's not real because in their circles, they don't push themselves to explore outside of themselves. They just want to surround people, surround themselves with people who are just like them. And and so I just wanted to, to like kind of show that in a kid's book, like, you know, it's the same kind of idea. Like you just need to push yourself and, and look at differences and it might be kind of scary at first, but it can actually be really rewarding if you take the chance. And yeah, and like, it's kind of like saying to children also like, or to their parents, that they Mm -hmm. exist, like these people are actually here. And this is not just, you know, some made up story that this lady thought about. This Mm -hmm. is her life Mm -hmm. and her children. And these stories need to be read more. People need to see, you know, just these on the shelves or everywhere because we are here. 
then yeah. we're, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a, we have a question for your, for your writing. So what is your writing process like? Like, um, do you just go for it or do you make a plot? Do you have to be in a certain place? Does the air conditioning <laughs> a certain temperature? Do we need tea or coffee or oh my goodness, where, where do you gotta be? Oh man, so it's so interesting. Like I feel like I just realized I go through this yearly cycle with my writing. Um, like in the beginning of the year, that's when I'm really productive. So that's when I'm usually just like I write a bunch of poems and I'll that's when I started my novel was like back in February or March, like that kind of thing. And then in the summer and fall, that's when it starts to slow down. But that's when I focus more on editing. So that's when I put together my, I have like a full length poetry manuscript that I've been working on. And I finally figured out how it'll all go together in the middle of the summer. Um, And then uh, I, I also just like, I'm looking back at my novel and editing as I'm going and and things like that. So for me, I don't really have like a daily schedule. It's more like chunks of time where it all just pours out of me. And then other chunks of time where I'm like, okay, I've given this a rest for a couple weeks. Now let me go through and and look at all of it and and see how it's going. Um, I also have started because I wanna make writing like a full-time thing. And so I know I need to have like a more clear cut structure to my writing. So what I've started doing is looking on YouTube for generative writing workshops where it forces you to produce something by the end of the video. And those have been extremely helpful. So I'll do that primarily for my poetry. And then for my fiction writing, I'll hop on a live stream. And there's people on YouTube who just sit there for an hour, everyone's silently typing, but something about having the video on and everybody's looking at each other, it forces you to be more productive then if you're just at home and you're like, oh yeah, I know I got to write, but let me go make my coffee. Oh, I got to put this clothes in the dryer. Oh, you know, my daughter's out of bed. I got to go put her to sleep. And there's something about blocking that time, but then also being accountable to other people that forces you to, to really take the time to, to write your story. Oh, look at that. Some pro tips. Yeah. I just wrote yeah. down all of what you <laughs> just said so I can uh, do those same things. Yeah. Do you, do you find it? sometimes painful to sit down like it just like oh I gotta sit and write do you feel like you die to yourself every time you have to write oh my god this past week I was trying to work on my novel and I love this concept for my novel but I've hit this point where I'm like I don't know how to write the thing that I'm trying to write I can see it in my head I don't know how to get it down on paper so for 30 minutes I wrote maybe a sentence (laughs) I was like all right I'm done I can't do this anymore um but I also, from every interview I've listened to from a writer or every, you know, book I've read that a writer's written, they've said the same thing. They go through the same thing. And I think it's just part of the process. It's like your brain's working on it in the background. And when it's ready to come out, it'll come out. Mm-hmm. But you've got to keep those muscles, you know, working. So when it does come out, you actually have the skills to write it all down. Like training for a marathon. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You, you just yeah. can't go go ahead and do it it has to be like you know sharpened get the cobwebs out yeah so is there any chance that you would be um because I know you, you spoke about 
the, the novel that you're currently working on. But is there any chance that you'll be writing like adult fiction in the future or are you trying to stay, like, stay in the children route? Man, like, so if I were to write adult fiction, I've been thinking about this a lot. I feel like I would want to do a hard sci-fi kind of book because oh I am obsessed gosh. with that genre. I am too. Oh my God. <laughs> my match. Can it be about a Latinx person? Of course, it's going to be about a Latinx person. But yes, please do that. She loves all the sci-fi stuff. So. Even though I'm scared to death. I'm just, I'm the scared to get of the group. So I'm afraid yeah. of everything. But I'll read it. <laughs> but I just, I read Contact over the summer. And that's like such a classic hard sci-fi novel. And I'm like, this is so good. And then I just finished Kindred by Octavia Butler, which is all about time travel. And I'm just like, how do they how do they come up with the rules the consistency of it making sure the science of it makes sense that's where i'm lacking because i'm like i can barely add so <laughs> <laughs> but I you can work. write that's the most important thing <laughs> and you can make up the rules you can make the rules uh, yeah. the weirder the better please do it please okay do. you convinced me <laughs> it's it's mostly for me you know <laughs> So um, we know that you are a teacher. Mm -hmm. and, um, COVID it has become somewhat uh, the supporting, if not the protagonist in this thing that we call life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we want to know how have you been able to cope with um, our new world as you show up to teach every morning? I'll be honest, like, at first it was okay. So my school has done a model where students were able to choose if they wanted to stay home or if they wanted to come to school. And so about half of my students stayed home the first quarter and the other half are at school. And at first I was stressed about it because I was just like, I don't know how this is going to work. But I've actually grown to really like it primarily because class sizes are so small. I feel like I can teach on a level that I haven't been able to do before. I'm building relationships with my kids. I'm not, there's not that like behavior management side that takes up a lot of teaching. So that part of it has been really nice, but then my kids at home are struggling and I can't be there to guide them through it. I'll even offer office hours. And this is something we're experiencing as a grade level. A lot of the kids just aren't coming to zoom meetings that we host during the day to help them with their work. And they're in eighth grade, so I think that's like half the problem. You know, they're, they're almost in high school, they're feeling themselves a little bit, <laughs> but it's also like th these courses, you need them if you wanna go to your high school. Like a lot of them wanna go to these advanced schools and IB programs. And I'm like, buddy, you're barely skating by with the C right now. Like, and this is that you just really have to turn and work. It's not even, you know, that you're not getting good scores. It's just, you're not turning stuff in. Mm -hmm. um, so that has been the part of it that has been the biggest struggle. What I am nervous about is in a couple of weeks, we're going to go from mostly kids at home to mostly kids in person at school. And my family's been hit so hard with, from COVID. My dad had it, a bunch of my cousins had it, my stepmom, a lot of her family members had it and a few passed away from it. And it's just, in Jacksonville, it just didn't hit as hard as Miami. So I feel like people up here don't think it's real mm. in the same way that people in Miami do. And it's, um, mentally for me, that's, that's like a concern of mine. 
that I know is going to come through in my teaching because teaching such an emotional job mm-hmm. and you have to be on it. It's almost like you're a performer. You got to like put on the show for your kids. And if you are mentally somewhere else, you're not going to be able to convey the lesson that you're trying to teach that day. So it, and like, I'll be honest, as a teacher right now, I feel like I'm a, I'm a pawn in someone else's game. Ooh. Like I didn't get to choose if I could stay home and teach from home. I didn't get to choose, you know, what the parameters are that I would teach in person. I just had to do it. Yep. And because the economy and I'm like, okay, but if we all die, there's no economy. So I don't understand yeah. what the point is we're trying to make here. So that's, that's the other part that is also it's hard people like we need teachers but then we don't really offer teachers the respect that they deserve so it's a catch-22 and i completely understand where she's coming from because you know i work in the hospital Mm -hmm. so i mean we take more liability because we are you know we, we do what we have to do but to hear you know people that like your family being hit really hard because of other people's maybe you know not really paying attention to what's really going on and maybe other people's negligence. That's almost the same way as in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't really need to be here if you were a little bit more, I guess, caring to other people's safety and also to yourself. Mm-hmm. But since it is what it is, what we, you know, the world that we live right now is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, we like, they don't see the people that would suffer, i.e. the teachers that would have to do their job, but they're, it's, they're given the bare minimum on how to do it. And yet mm-hmm. they're expected to give a thousand percent to their kids. So mm-hmm. I feel for you, I wish you safety for whatever, you know, direction that your school would, get, would, would be going to. So, Thank you. Yeah, cause it's, you just wanna do your job right. But it's hard doing your job if you're compromised. Yeah. And, and I will say, like, I don't even want to blame school leaders because school leaders are kind of in the same boat as teachers, especially this year. Like, my school had a plan and had it all laid out, and it was, like, so well done. And then the state was like, well, we're not going to give funding unless you guys offer in-face instruction. And it's just like, again, but this is supposed to be local control. But now, all of a sudden, we believe in big government, so... I don't want to get political, but I'm just like, y'all are playing games with people's lives. Yeah. And if you would just trust districts and communities to do what's right for their own people, again, we wouldn't see half the mess that we see across the country. Mm-hmm. So you can get political. This is a safe space. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, speaking of Jacksonville, in which you reside, uh, mm-hmm. recently we interviewed um, a writer named Sunil Barnes, who uh, she's a, a Filipino writer and mm-hmm. li- currently lives in South Carolina. She goes between South Carolina and New York. Um, so she recently released an anthology that's comprised of writings from various authors who currently or live in the South. Mm-hmm. And so we want to know if you had an, an if you had to write on your experience as being born a Southern girl in Florida, <laughs> um, what would it say, um, what would you say it has been like to live in this part of the world, i.e. Florida, um, mm-hmm. as, a, as a Cuban-American woman? 
So it's interesting because I feel like Miami is not Southern, and that's where I grew up. But then Tallahassee, where I went to college, is very Southern. Same. <laughs> I went to FAMU, so I was across. Oh, the okay. <laughs> We're the cousins. Um, <laughs> No, you're a homegirl, so I'm the cousin. <laughs> oh, that's right, that's right. I'm sorry. I've messed with you. <laughs> um, yeah, but I just feel like it's, I, I would feel like I would have to write a story from an outsider's perspective because I feel like the Latinx perspective on the Southern experience is not something that's talked about very much. Mm-hmm. But I also lived in Memphis, Tennessee for four years, and And then also, like, going to Louisiana, because I've been there a few times. Louisiana is probably the southernmost area where I feel like there is a lot of similarities with Latinx culture and Louisiana culture. Um, And so I, that's all I'm really thinking of is, like, a story where it's, like, I'm there, but I'm apart. And I don't, that's kind of what it feels like a lot is, like, it's like the thing that we talk around and we dance around it, we're not going to fully address it, but it's still an integral part of the community because at the end of the day, like a lot of Latinx people are the ones growing the food and, you know, taking care, cleaning houses and taking care of kids and, you know, really doing that manual labor aspect of the economy, but then just not addressed very often. Not enough recognition Mm -hmm. for these people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, this has been like a wonderful conversation with (laughs) Michelle Flores. Um, We we would like to give you an opportunity to um, tell our people where they can find you. I know she got a YouTube channel, (laughs) um, the Instagrams, or if you're in the Twitter and the website. So, and where they can purchase your books from, all that good stuff. Yeah. Oh my okay. So yeah, I'm pretty much on all social media, Twitter, Instagram, Goodreads for book reviews. Um, and my handle is at Shelly Flowers. I also have a YouTube channel called Shelly Flowers Reads and Writes, where it's just, that's it, reading and writing. That's basically all I talk about on there. And then in terms of buying my book, you can buy them anywhere books are sold. But if you want a signed copy, just DM me on Instagram or Twitter and we can work that out. Um, Cause I like to send, I, I love signing books. That's probably my favorite part of having books to sell now is like, I can write personalized messages and stuff like that. So yeah, just uh, hit me up on there and I will send it your way. Oh, look at that. My personalized <laughs> little message. <laughs> so be, um, so before we end this conversation, um, being at Latin, Latin, Heritage Month. Um, we want to ask your top five favorite Latin X books recommendations um, for our people. Okay, anything by Elizabeth Acevedo right now. I think she is doing it like nobody else right now, and she's she's got a chat book of poetry, but she also has two novels in verse and a and a like magical realism YA travel novel called with the fire on high which is like one of my favorite books ever i'm obsessed with her she's my favorite author my hero there's also this book of experimental poetry by alan Pelaez lopez who is a non-binary afro-indigenous author 
and they wrote this collection of poetry that's basically their story of like being from Oaxaca, Mexico, and then crossing the border as an undocumented immigrant. It's so powerful. It's called Intergalactic Travels, Tales from a Fugitive Alien. Then there's Jessica Salgado, who's a Salvi poet from California. And she just writes about, you know, being a fat brown woman in California and those experiences. And and her poetry is very romantic and beautiful. Um, If we're going to go classics, my favorite classic Latin American author is Jorge Luis Borges, who is, um, I believe he's from Argentina. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because his grandmother was English, so he grew up bilingual, and a lot of his work is very, it, it plays a lot with language in that way. Um, so I think that was four. And then number five, who could my fifth one be? Uh, oh, I just finished a book that I really loved it's called Malcriada and Other Stories, and it's by another Dominican-American author named Lorraine Avila. Mm-hmm. And her work were all of these vignettes of just snapshots of being a Dominican growing up in the Bronx and, um, you know, being Afro-Latina and like navigating spaces in the United States. So those are my top five right now, for sure. Nice. Now, <laughs> those are your top five uh, in honor for the month. What are your, your favorite, your top five favorite books that you, that you of all time from Fred. Oh my God, that's a tough one. Okay. Um, Barakun by Zora Neale Hurston, who's one of my top five authors of all time. Anything by Toni Morrison. Um, Beloved was the first book where I read it and I understood on a mechanical level that she was doing things nobody else was doing. That was the first time where I looked at that and I was like, oh, this is what good writing looks like. Because I feel like when you're a kid, you don't really think about writing in that way. Um, so Zora Neale Hurston, Toni Morrison, um, Denez Smith, non-binary poet based out of Minneapolis. Incredible. Just so many of their poems are my favorite of all time. Um, This is a hard question for I know. Remote. We should have gave it to you ahead of time. So you Yeah, I'm like <laughs> cuz I want to look at my bookshelf and be like, "Oh yeah, it's this one." <laughs> like if your house was on fire and you could only take five favorite <laughs> books. That's my nightmare. I would be so You going to make her cry. <laughs> <laughs> um I'm going to say uh I'm going to put Elizabeth Acevedo in there again as like top five author. And then there's this other book of poetry, which I'm going to reread pretty soon uh, by a French poet named Charles Baudelaire. It's called The Flowers of Evil. And I read it in grad school and it was just, it's very sad boy, like very French. I'm going to smoke a cigarette and and think about the woman I love kind of thing. (laughs) But I just thought it was so beautiful when I first read it. Um, and so that, that's probably top five up there. Awesome. Well, on behalf of Vulgar Genius, Sports and Fangs, we want to say thank you for joining us on our Thank on you our for podcast. your time, Michelle. This has been great. You are very smart. 
you are very accomplished in what you can, you know, write, do, and say. And I'm I'm gonna wait on that sci-fi novel. Okay. <laughs> we have to make this happen. I'm about it. Um, and that w- that will be really dope. But um, for all the peoples that are listening, check out her books. She's a wonderful writer, a wonderful human being. Thank you Thank for you. On the show. And Thank you. You know, we wish you safe, safeness as you go out and inspire these little children and <laughs> write more books for me and for the world. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you, guys. Bye. So nice to meet you. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.